Open your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. One of the things that uh, we have talked quite a bit about is the danger of falling away. And I realize that even when I hear that myself, I think, no way. But as we have talked about, there's many different ways to fall away. We can fall away and be sitting in a pew every week. And it constantly amazed me, as I've mentioned before, that the writer of Hebrews spends such detailed amount of time talking about things that, in general, we Christians are not very impressed with. In other words, when he goes into detail in chapter 7 about Melchizedek, we shrug our shoulders typically. When he goes into detail in chapter 9 about all the articles of the tabernacle and the holy place and the priests going in every day regularly and then mentioning the once a year that the high priest goes in, we shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, that happened. Why are we talking about this again? We're under Christ, and we don't need that. And we struggle, I know I have, with why did you spend so much detail on this? Why did you talk about this so much? And discovering the why should rock every one of us. I hope you will follow this carefully. It will take your careful attention to hear the message of chapters 7 through 9. Obviously, we cannot preach all of that. But I can give you a theme. I can give you a connectivity to that that helps you see the important point. It is not too deep and is not too far off. But it does take our attention in order to see it. It is a wonderful picture, and yet we have to continually remind ourselves that in the midst of all of those details, the whole reason the preacher is going through that is because this will help you not fall away. This will give you endurance. And when he came to chapter 10, at the very end of the chapter, he said, you have need of endurance. And the reason he's doing this is in order to emphasize the need for them to endure and what it was going to take and what they needed to know. Here's the bottom line. They didn't know enough to have the endurance they needed. That became amazingly true to me as I studied this this week. That the reason for the lack of endurance so often in Christians, and whether it's a total fall away or it's just a slippage back or, it, or it's just a struggle of, of faith, it is a matter of not having enough knowledge of God to be able to endure. That the knowledge of God itself is what creates the endurance. And therefore the Hebrew preacher here goes into great detail because he wants them to see something about God that they have not seen. Even though they've been Christians for 30-some years, 
They haven't seen it and they haven't appreciated it. And he wants to get them to get that so they will not grow weak. And we all grow weak. It's a phenomenal picture that he gives. Let me start very simply here. He states in chapter 8, verse 1, now the point that in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. Just some emphasis on that. We have such a high priest. Let's be reminded that he introduced Jesus as our high priest way back in chapter 2 in verse 17. Said very little about it, just simply introduced it to the minds of the reader. Here is this great high priest that we have. And from that point on, he gradually and methodically developed the significance, the importance of this great high priest. And then he gets to chapter 8 and he says these words, we have such a high priest. But notice even this. It's the key to this to help our lack of endurance, but notice the words, the point in what we are saying. So the word point here, just as we might conclude even in our English, but in the Hebrew especially, the word point here is him saying this is the critical point. This is the main point. This is the point that I've been trying to get across the whole time. And then when he turns around and says the point that what in what we are saying, and he is using this present tense, indicates to us that not only this point of we have such a high priest, has been talked about up to this point, but now he is beginning to draw the conclusion about the greatness of what this high priest is to us. And so he in, continues that all the way through chapter 10. Now think about that. The letter then starts with the great high priest, a son that God has chosen way back in chapter 2, and he lays that out. And the reason... The point, the end goal, he said at the beginning of chapter 2, was for us to be crowned with glory and honor with him and called his brothers. But in order for that to happen, we have to have this great high priest. And he begins in chapter 2 talking about him. And in chapter 10, he isn't done. How many times do we read and just get lost in the weeds? We just get lost in all the verses and all the details. But you see, the preacher knows, look, you've got to be patient here. You've got to spend some time with me to see this. You have to slow down. Don't get lost here. I want you to be able to understand how this great high priest is going to affect your faith. And it's going to strengthen you so that you will not be weak. And you will not be one that I have to say to you, you need endurance. Because when I get done with you seeing what this high priest is about, you're going to be walking on air. You won't be slipping back. You're going to be climbing mountains of faith. That's where you're going to be. It is a tremendous message. What makes him then such a great high priest? Let's take a brief Look, and I want you to see the theme. We'll see how this looks. Let's appreciate just a key message in each of the chapters 7, 8, 9, 
10, a key message, see his goal. We start with appreciating, of course, in chapter 7, this idea of him introducing Melchizedek as this great high priest. You know that. We've talked about that. Sure, we look at it and say, yeah, good old Mel, he didn't die, and he didn't have a mommy and a daddy, and he didn't have a genealogy, and he didn't have that, and so he just lived forever in a figurative sense, and Jesus is like that, and he's the perfect because he lives forever. Got it. Don't got it. No, don't got it. Let's see what he's saying. Start with verse 11, chapter 7. Follow this, please, in your Bibles. Chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Emphasis on the word, if perfection had been attainable. Perfection was not attainable. What we are looking for is perfection. And perfection is not attainable under the law and under a priest that is flawed. And the Levitical priests were flawed. They died. I don't want a dead priest. He's not going to help me. And he's not going to help you. We needed something greater. 7, chapter 7, verse 18. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Can you imagine? You read that whole law of the Old Testament and he said, all of those things that were going on, all of the priests, all of the rituals, all of the sacrifices, millions upon millions of sacrifices being offered every year. And he said it was weak and it was useless and it made no one perfect. It is a statement of need on our part. It's a statement of we aren't there and we can't get there that way. Look on at chapter 7 and verse 20. And he says, And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus a guarantor of a better covenant. Now here is the apostle telling us that these priests, all these years, no one ever swore to them, you're a priest. They just got born that way. They didn't do anything. Did they do anything to accomplish the position of being a priest? No, not one. They just got born into the right family. La-di-da, I'm a priest. <laughs> no. He says they became a priest without an oath. But this one became a priest because the God of heaven said, I swore with an oath and I will not change my mind. He will, you will be a priest forever. Forever you will be. It is with an oath that this took and came. 
You see, we're beginning to see the reason why this is so important. Without an oath, a regular everyday person born is going to die and his priesthood comes to an end. He's an imperfect priest. And an imperfect priest creates imperfect people. And a perfect priest is going to create perfect people. We need a perfect priest if we are going to survive this. And then he goes on in chapter 7 and verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood continued. They were prevented by death in continuing this office. Again, we're not interested in a dead priest. In a priest that is no different than us. He will do nothing but produce an imperfect person. <coughs> Look on at verse 27, 28. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 27 and 28. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first of his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. To get this in our minds, just consider for a moment, what if one of us was the high priest? One of us is going into the most holy place to offer for our sins. You know, make it even deeper. Can you imagine watching Caiaphas or Annas, the high priest in the days of Jesus, who were responsible for murdering him and all the junk they did? Can you imagine them going into the most holy place and offering for you? I can just imagine standing there watching them walk into that tab temple and going, well, la-di-da, I cannot believe this. That man, that man is going to offer a sacrifice for me? That's not going to help me. And we have this beautiful statement. He swore with an oath and he chose a son. He appointed a son to go into that. And he didn't offer blood for himself. He took his own. Look on further. It's transitioned to chapter 8. And now he goes from what kind of high priest? From the quality of the high priest. From the oath of the high priest. To where the high priest ministers. He ministers, verse 2, in the holy places, which is the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. Why, this holy place that you're looking at here on earth, this temple or this tabernacle with two rooms, the holy and the most holy, was set up by man and was nothing but a copy. It's just a copy. It's a cheap copy that is ready to be discarded. This cheap copy... He's not serving in a cheap copy. He's in heaven himself, serving in the actual, real, most holy place. That's where he is. And not only that, 
He is serving and mediating a covenant that is not faulty. Notice those words first in verse 7. When he says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there's a deep connection between the kind of high priest and the covenant that they give. If the high priest is faulty, the covenant they bring is faulty, neither are able to intercede for us. Sometimes we forget, and you know I've done I've done a sermon on this, but it's been a year, and who remembers one even last week? Not even me, probably. So, but here's the deal. You and I can't be saved without a high priest. And proof of that is when Israel worshipped that calf in the wilderness, and God told Moses, if you just move aside for a second, I'm going to fry every one of them and I'll make a new nation from you. And what he was doing there, what God was doing was, I'm inviting you to intercede for them, because if you don't, I will kill them. We're all under the curse of sin. And if we do not have this high priest, we cannot make it. We will not make it. It is impossible. That's God's setup. There has to be the high priest. And as Isaiah said in Isaiah 59, if there was no man to do it, when there, he found that there was no one that could step in, he bore his own arm and he raised up his own power and he stepped in. He stepped in and brought mediation before the throne of God. And then you see the words even in verse 8. He finds fault with them. Yes, a covenant faulty. Why? Because it cannot perfect the worshiper. That's been the theme. The worshiper cannot be perfected. And therefore the covenant is faulty. And therefore the high priest is faulty. And everything is laying out for us this picture of there is an impossibility under this system that any human being can make up and do anything to solve this problem. It is going to take God who does it. Now go to chapter 9. And you see a flawed system. And he you know, he goes through and explains the flaws of these systems. And again, our eyes begin to roll back in our head as we see in chapter 9 as he goes through the regulations and the first tent and the second curtain and behind the curtain and the golden altar and all of these things. These preparations made in verse 6 even calls them ritual duties that are being done. And in the second, verse 7, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without making, uh, taking blood, which is first offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. What is the problem? The way into the holy place, the holy place, the real holy place, the way into heaven is not opened yet. What is our goal? What's going to cause you to endure? What's going to make the difference? I need to get there because if I'm not in the holy place, I'm dead. I'm imperfect. And you know why I can't get in the holy place? Because I'm unholy. And all the sacrifices could not make me holy. 
And all the offerings could not make me holy. And all the pigeons that were offered, and the doves that were offered, and the animals that were offered could not make me holy. And all the priests and all the high priests could not make me holy. Because everything is imperfect. Nothing would make me holy, unholy, unholy, unholy. Over and again, he emphasizes the picture. All of this is talking about in chapter 9. When you go through these details, you say, what, what, what? He's showing us the inaccessibility of God. You cannot grow near. You could not come near. The priest, the priest, he said, they could go into the holy place. Cross the veil, dude. Go right ahead. Just give it a try. A king walked into the holy place one day. Uzziah, oh, I, I'm, God likes me so much. I can walk into the holy place and burn incense. Leprosy spreading all over his body by the time he got out. You don't walk into the holy place. You don't even get into the first part, much less the second. And then the high priest, how often? Just once a year. Please, be the high priest for a second. It's your first time. Daddy's dead. You're the new high priest. You have to go on the seventh month and the tenth day of the month. You get all dressed up and you walk in to the most holy place. You go behind the veil. Anybody's knees knocking? Whew. Right there. You're going to take that blood. You can't wait to get that blood. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Please don't. Please don't. Please don't kill me here. In later days, they'd tie a rope around the guy in case something went wrong and they drug you, had to drag him out. You're stepping into the presence of God. But not yet. Close, but not yet. So much did God emphasize this that in the days of the tabernacle, the Levites and the priests camped around the tabernacle. Numbers says they camped around it to guard it, lest anyone crossed over and died. What a weird thing. God says, build me a tabernacle that I may dwell in their midst, but stay back. You're unholy. I want you, but I can't take you in. You're unholy. You must not cross the line. That's the emphasis of chapter 9, is that inaccessibility. Notice how he talks about in the holy place. The priest performed, I just was struck by the words, verse 6, ritual duties. You ever see Jesus do a ritual duty? No. He doesn't do ritual duties. And then you see in the most holy place, the high priest enters only once a year. That's all. That's all. You want to try it on the seventh month, the 11th day? No, you're dead. You only go in that one time. And that only because I'm allowing you to give you a picture of what's coming. That's what I want to do. Strong messages the writer is giving. The high priest is flawed. The blood he took was animal blood. And further, the yearly repetition indicated 
a constant accumulation of sins. Oh, I just started imagining. The high priest goes in, first bringing blood for himself, comes back out, gets another goat and brings the blood of that one in and sprinkles it. And I think, oh, cleansed. And then sin, and then sin, and then sin. And it's accumulating again. And by the seventh month and the tenth day, a year later, he's not only remembered every sin of that year, but every sin I've ever committed. It has completely overwhelming me. There is a constant consciousness of my sin. Unholy, unholy. You cannot come near. That's the picture. And the preacher's strong applications here. The Levitical system, chapter 9, verse 9. Notice the words. He says, which is symbolic. Word in the Greek is parable. This is a parable. These pictures are a parable. That according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscious conscience of the worshiper. Do you see how that's critical for not falling away? That's critical for endurance. If I walk around and my conscience is never perfected, if my conscience is never purified, how am I going to be able to live? I can't come close. I can't come close. Unholy, unholy. In chapter 9 and verse 14, then he says these words, How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now we see a purification of it. Chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. He's making us into the most holy place. He's not purifying something up there in heaven that you can cube out and say, I get to enter. He is purifying the actual holy place which we become, the new Jerusalem that's talked about and spoken of as this great cube in the book of Revelation. He's purifying us with something greater so that we can be His most holy place dwelling in our midst. That's the idea. And then in chapter 9.24, For Christ has entered not, only, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He is in the actual presence of God. And then these beautiful words in 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, Oh, you got to love these final words. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now, He takes care of the sin the one time. The next time He comes, He's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. 
Now, here is the pinnacle point. Here's the final. The flawed system now becomes unflawed in chapter 10. He begins with those words in verse, in verse 1 and 2. Since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually, you see the boredom of same and continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You see, that's been the theme the whole time. It can't make us perfect. It would not make us perfect. In verses 3 and 4, and in fact, here's the other side of the coin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Not only would the old system not make us perfect, it did the opposite. It simply reminded us of how sinful we were. That nothing upon nothing that man ever could offer, no sacrifice whatsoever, could do anything to make him perfect or take away his consciousness of sin. It's just impossible for it to happen. And then in 5, verse eight, five through 8 of chapter 10, consequently. Do you see those words? Consequently. Because all of that could not make us perfect. Because of all of that. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. What is the will of God? What was the will of God that Jesus is submitting to? He says, give me the body. Nothing else will satisfy for their sins. Nothing else will make them perfect. Nothing else will take away their consciousness of sin. Give me the body. In a body you have desired. The Lamb of God came to do the will of God. What God really desired. Not for Jesus' sake, but for our sake. What he desired was the offering of the body of the perfect Lamb of God, offered one time for all time in a body. Now there's one more thing. Here's the end goal. We didn't talk about it. We didn't mention it as we passed by. Is the idea of drawing near. If we're imperfect, we cannot draw near. Quickly, look at the verses. He started in chapter 4 and verse 14. Since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Please, 
Please do not read that and think, oh good, when I get sick, or when I'm troubled, or when I'm anxious, or when I'm in trials, I can go to the throne of grace and find help. He isn't talking about that. He's talking about your sins. He's talking about your weakness. He's talking about your lack of ability to endure. And he's saying, you can come on in. You can come in. And you can, with confidence, draw near. You can walk right in. And you can get help in that time of need. You don't have to give up. And you don't have to lack endurance. And you don't have to get discouraged. You can come in and get help in your time of need. In chapter 7 and verse 18, we read it. For the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because it's weakness and useless for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope introduced through which we draw near to God. The perfect high priest makes it possible to be perfected. And most importantly, we can draw near. We can enter. Chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is there interceding. You can go in. You can go in. You can draw near. It was his reason the whole time, from the very beginning, to plant us in the great garden of Eden and dwell in our midst. And we blew it and he is bringing it all back together. You can draw near. You can walk in. You can be there. In chapter 10, he's making perfect, verse 1, those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not cease to be offered since the worshipers having been cleansed would no longer have a consciousness of sins? You know why you can't draw near? That's consciousness of sin. The conscience hasn't been clean. The conscience hasn't been perfected. And therefore then in chapter 10, 19, he <laughs> brings it to that pinnacle point. Therefore, brothers, <coughs> since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great High priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Why couldn't we draw near? Unholy, unholy, unholy. Before the throne, the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. We step, we're unholy, unholy, unholy. And Jesus then gave his body so that it could be said of us, holy, holy, holy. And we have no more consciousness of sin. There's no more reason to tremble. There's no more reason to be 
scared to walk in before the throne. There's no more reason to think that I'm not going to make it. There's no reason to think, well, maybe he won't forgive this sin. There is no more reason. Holy, 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 come in. A body has been offered to you. You see God saying, come on in. Please, please, come on in. That's what I've always planned for you to come on in. As I studied this this week, I broke down and cried repeatedly about that message. It was beyond anything that I'd ever seen in the text before or felt. I don't know if I communicated it well enough. Please go back and read it. Be impressed that God has said, come in. Look at those final words in chapter 10 and verse 9 and 10. Behold, here's Jesus. Behold, I have come to do your will. Your will to offer a body. I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that weak old order, to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified, made holy. That's the word. Sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all time. Once for all time. Please. Come on in. We can help you. Let's stand and sing.